Welcome to Navarra Media. I'm Moya Lothian-McLean, your host for tonight and future Thursday evenings. And tonight I'm joined by the wonderful Ash Sarkar. Hi, Ash. Hey, how you doing? Very well, thank you. Um, and in today's show, we will be discussing has the Scottish government lost billions in an economic disaster of a privatisation deal, while another union is hit with devastating allegations of sexual harassment and bullying that go all the way to the top. Plus, an update on the plight of those affected by the earthquake in Syria and Turkey. But first, an ill wind is blowing in Scotland. From triumph to tragedy for the Scottish government this week, bungled deals to develop the country's lucrative wind assets may have cost the public coffers up to £60 billion. Last year, Crown Estate Scotland, the public corporation controlled by the government, celebrated a historic £700 million sell-off of seabed plots to a bevy of oil giants, including, yes, Shell and BP, in order to develop into offshore wind farms. Now, here's what Crown Estate Scotland's chief executive, Simon Hodge, had to say at the time. Today's results are a fantastic vote of confidence in Scotland's ability to transform our energy sector. In addition to environmental benefits, this also represents a major investment in the Scottish economy, with around 700 million being delivered straight into the public finances and billions of pounds worth of supply chain commitment. But... Now the wind has very much changed. A report by Scottish think tank Commonweal sounded the alarm. Its investigation shows, among other failures, that Scotland's seabed leases have been massively undervalued, the tune of billions. And to add insult to injury, a cap was placed on the amount companies could bid for the permits in the first place, meaning the potential public windfall was artificially limited from the beginning. Now, there's likely further losses when it comes to jobs. No guarantees have been made by these companies that the majority of key manufacturing and supply chain infrastructure will, in fact, take place on Scottish soil. Now, calls for public inquiry into the sell-off are starting to grow. To unpick the Scotwind scandal, I'm joined by Dr. Craig Deal of Commonweal, who authored the report. Craig, thank you for joining us. Now, why has the Scotwind auction process potentially cost Scotland's public purse billions? So as you mentioned, there there was a price ceiling placed on the auction for the, the, these areas of seabed. It was initially set at £10,000 per square kilometre. Um, alarm was sounded that that was far too low. So the Crown Estate Scotland raised that to £100,000 per square kilometre. And as we see in last January, they announced that they had raised £700 million. They raised another £55 million from a, a later clearing round midway through the year. However, if we look at offshore auctions around the world, particularly in the US and in England, Scotland could have raised much more. Uncapped auctions in New York um, had Scotland matched that auction in terms of a per megawatt basis, Scotland would have raised £16.4 billion in a single payment. Had Scotland matched the per megawatt price raised by an English auction last year, Scotland would have raised up to £28 billion across a decade of payments. Now that's no small change. Tell us, in addition, auction winning companies like BP have committed nearly £30 billion of supply chain investment in Scotland. But you say this is a short straw. Why is that? 
that 28 billion um, actually only represents just a little over a third of what these companies have have committed to global spending. A lot of that spending, particularly in manufacturing and installation, will go out with Scotland. Uh, in addition, the regulations around the, the, the Crown Estate Scotland framework here, uh, they have fines in place. So if a company has made a commitment to spend, say, a billion pounds uh, in manufacturing in Scotland, if they bring forward the final plan and they fall short of that minimum commitment, they can be fined. But the maximum fine is only about £250,000. It practically incentivizes companies to break these promises if it's going to be cheaper to pay the fine and import wind turbines rather than set up a factory to build them in Scotland. So it seems there's been a lot of missed opportunities here. And another one, what role could the creation of a Scottish public energy company have played in this process? And why didn't one exist? Commonweal has been campaigning for a public energy company in Scotland basically since our inception. Um, we won a campaign uh, in, uh, among the SNP, the Scottish National Party, to create that, that policy. It was adopted by the Scottish Government. They later dropped that commitment. Um, it's unlikely under devolution, under the strictures of devolution and the constraints of devolution, that, that a public energy company could have completely nationalised Scotland. We accept that. Perhaps under Scottish independence, maybe it could have. In the current setup, no. It could have played a role, though. It could have co-invested in Scotland. It could have built up its own skills and capacity. It could have taken the profits from Scotland and used that to bootstrap itself up and become bigger and be in a place where it could have taken on a more complete role in a, a future Scotland too, for example. The public energy company should also be there in place when the, the current leases come to the end of their term, or Scotland one. And the public energy company could be there to step in and take over public ownership of these turbines. Or they could be there so that if the companies do breach their promises, break clauses in the contracts could be activated and the public energy company could again step in and take these uh, assets back into public ownership. Now, Craig, how much responsibility should the Scottish government, particularly the SNP, bear for what's happened here? Well, they are the ultimate uh, the, uh, the ultimate authority in, in this matter. So they should be uh, explaining why these auctions were set up the way, way they were. We would like to see an inquiry to understand why the failures happened in Scotland as they did, including things like the price cap in the auction, on the auction, why those numbers were chosen uh, instead of having a, an uncapped free market auction. Scotland should also be there, should also follow Wales's example and set up that public energy company. We need to start building that capacity to retain uh, Scotland's assets in public hands. We've seen over the last week the vast profits that these energy companies have been making, uh, particularly through the energy crisis. A lot of those same companies are also going to be involved in Scotland. They are also going to be extracting billions of pounds in profits from our energy bills over the next several decades. The Scottish Government has to step in, set up that public energy company and be ready to keep those assets in Scottish hands for the benefit of the Scottish public good. Next story. We are talking about a Tory troublemaker. Lee Anderson has been deputy chair of the Tory party for just 48 hours. And he was a surprising pick, to say the least, and one that Rishi Sunak may already be regretting. That's because before the MP for Ashfield was appointed as deputy chair, he gave an interview to The Spectator, where he aired some pretty hair-raising views. The spectator asked him whether he'd support the death penalty. He told them this. Yes, nobody has ever committed a crime after being executed. You know that, don't you? 
100% success rate. Now, I'd be very careful on that one because you'll get certain groups saying, you can never prove it. Well, you can prove it if they have videoed it and are on camera, like the Lee Rigby killers. I mean, they should have gone same week. I don't want to pay for these people. No one ever committed a crime after being executed. True. Also true. Plenty of people never committed a crime before being executed either. Now, it it seems pointless trying to engage in the moral arguments with someone like Anderson, but since he's very worried about how much it costs to house killers, let's get into that instead. In countries like the US, because the death penalty is irrevocable, trials involving it tend to be lengthier, and there are usually several opportunities to appeal. Now, all this adds enormously to the cost. Equal Justice USA works to reform the American criminal justice system, They report this. The most rigorous cost study in the country found that a single death sentence in Maryland costs almost $2 million more than a comparable non-death penalty case. Before ending the death penalty, Maryland spent $186 million extra to carry out just five executions. A similar study showed that California has spent over $4 billion extra for the death penalty since 1978. But since Anderson thinks that Rigby's murderers should have been executed within a week, perhaps he's no fan of lengthy trials either. Now, Anderson, of course, had some thoughts on small boat crossings too. They are seeing a country where the streets are paved with gold, where once you land, they're not in some manky little fucking scruffy tent. They're going to be in a four-star hotel. And they know that Serco is buying up houses everywhere to put them in for the next five years. Why wouldn't you come? I'd send them straight back the same day. I'd put them on a Royal Navy frigate or whatever and sail it to Calais, have a standoff. And then they'd just stop coming. It may seem pretty astounding that a guy with these ideas and such wonderful expression of them is now deputy chair of the Tory party. But of course, that's the cynical reason Sunak appointed him to say reactionary things that appeal to the right wing of the base. However, the prime minister himself has been pretty quick to distance himself from the man he appointed literally two days ago. What would you say to you, uh, your colleagues who want to bring back the death penalty in this country? Well, that's not my view. That's not the, the government's view. But we are united in the Conservative Party and wanting to be absolutely relentless in bearing down on crime and making sure people are safe and feel safe. The Spectator interview, however, isn't the only Anderson media appearance that's been making waves. Remember this incident from Anderson's campaign trail in 2019? Let's get a few shots of you uh, on the knocker. If that's all right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he took us across the road and on the third door, an effusive supporter. Hiya. Hiya. I'm Lee Anderson, your parliamentary candidate for the Conservative Party. How are you doing? Hello. I recognise you. It's, it's Steve, isn't it? Yeah, it I recognise you. How you doing, mate? All right. Yes, I'm Just doing a bit of last-minute campaigning. Um, are you going to be voting oh, on yes, December the 12th? And do you yeah. mind me asking which way you're going to go this time? Well, I'm going to be up. There's you're no going. way Labour are ever going to get my vote again. And he liked Mr Anderson's very personal policy initiative this week. I watched that video. Yeah. What do you mean, uh, putting uh, antisocial people in tents? Yeah, I, I think he was a bit soft. That now. I think he was a bit soft on it. To be, to a bit soft? It. Yeah. What would you do then? I'd give cat and nine tails for. Cat and nine tails? Make him wear a pink tutu. Pink tutu? <laughs> that'd stop him going around bullying anybody. 
What about that? I can't support. I can't support this. Can can we just cut there for one moment, please? You can't support the cat of nine tails. Uh, no, I can't support that. I can't support that. It obviously got very strong opinions, but you know, very strong. But I, I can't okay. support that. Well, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Unknown to Anderson, however, he'd been wearing a live mic just minutes before that supposedly spontaneous visit, and that's how journalists caught this. Don't just make out you, you don't, don't make out you know who I am. You know I'm the candidate, but not a friend. All right. Uh, I'm out at Staff Car Park, have a quick look. Yeah? All right, my daughter, I'll see you in a minute. That right there is a direct view into the slippery and totally untrustworthy nature of British politics. But Lee Anderson would prefer if we all just forgot it. And luckily for Verity Cowley, who hosts a radio show on BBC Radio Nottinghamshire, she didn't get the memo. There is a worry by some that you are, that, you know, that, that you might be a bit dishonest. No, not really. Um, I mean, have you ever told a lie about it? I'm not, but we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about you. No, 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 no. That's the question. Have you ever told a lie? Well, I'll tell you what I'm talking about when I'm talking about dishonesty. I'm talking about that video, that video that you did, where you asked a friend yeah, you, to pose as have, an anti-Labour swing lie, voter. Have, but, have you ever told a lie? But we're not. But we're not talking about me. But but this isn't. This isn't. No, no, well, you know, no, no, I'm no, not. No, no, no. Let's, let's, let's have a balanced conversation. Have you ever told a lie? Well, I've not asked somebody to pretend to be somebody that they're have not. You told a lie? No, I've not you asked that. somebody I to pretend. Have you, have you. So, Verity, have you ever told a lie? So, yes or no answer? What I'm saying is, I've never asked somebody uh, so, to so, pretend to so, be something so, well, that they're not just that, to that's, further that's my campaign. Ago. I've that's, not asked somebody. Have you ever told a lie? And I am asking have you, you whether that is dishonest. Well, just. just Answer the question, please. Have you ever told a lie? I mean, what what do you mean? We, as humans, you tell false truths yeah. to protect people. So you tell false so, so, truths. So, so you're dishonest. I'm not so saying. You're dishonest. What I'm saying is there is a concern that. Based on what happened when you asked a friend to pretend to be an anti-Labour swing voter and you were caught doing it on camera, there is a concern well, the thing is, the about thing is, honesty well, no when concern. it comes to you. And yeah, I suppose I'm no just... But, and let's talk about that then, because I think that's really important. So we've established, we've established that you are already dishonest in the conversation because you've, you've admitted you tell lies. That interview went on for a full 11 minutes and 14 seconds. Normally, the BBC would cut something of that length down, but Anderson wasn't having it. OK, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you for your time. Yeah, well, make I sure you play that. all that. Make sure you play all that clip, Verity, because, you know, if you chop it... I'm going like to struggle to play... Lee Anderson, I am going to struggle to play it all because <clears> it is 10 minutes and we don't have 10 minutes of time, but... If you, if you chop it like I did last time, that's the last clip I give to Radio Nottingham. I want it all on, please. I'm not going to be able to play it all because it's 10 minutes long. But this is also the... I've well, not, then you don't know, put any on. Pardon? Then, then don't put any on, and you should put it all on so, it's, so people get the clear message of what exactly has been said. So, I, I, you know, if... It's 10 minutes long. I won't on. be able to play it all. But I will, you know... Yeah, but you can play it in sections. I, can't, I mean, I, I've got to refer it to a producer. That's how we work well, here. We work well, as then, a team. But let, well, let, then, let me just listen to it. Let me just listen to it. Yeah. And I'm just no, saying I'm to you... I'm asking you not to put it on then. 
I'm saying to you, I will let me just listen to it. There is a way of playing yeah. it where we're not playing 10 minutes out, but we're getting a flavour of what is being said. So let me just go back yeah. and listen okay, to well, it. Let me refer it to my producer uh, well, ask, uh, and we'll take well, and then we'll I'm take asking it you now not, oh, No, 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 you're not listening to me. I'm asking you now not to play it. Why are you asking me that? Because I, I can't trust you to play to play the whole lot and be and be fair to me. Uh, you, we're we're supposed to be talking about my role as a chair. But no, 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 you're not. Well, then we can just play supposed... that bit out. No, 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 no. L listen, please listen. We're supposed to be talking about my role as deputy chairman, not the other stuff. But it all kind so of. So you falls... went off at a tangent. If they don't that, no, it doesn't. It might do to you, but to me, it doesn't. I came on to talk about as a favour to Hugh to talk about my role as, as, as the deputy chair. So don't play it, please. If you do, I will never I will never give you anything again. The BBC eventually played the whole thing. Now, it looks like Rishi Sunak has appointed a man with extreme views on both capital punishment and radio production as deputy chair of the party to offset the more moderate and anonymous Remainer he's appointed as chair, one Greg Hands. Ash, is this a strategy that will actually appease the rabid Tory right wing? I don't think it's likely to appease anyone within the Conservative Party. And that's because Rishi Sunak's position is structurally very, very weak. He doesn't have a mandate from the Tory party membership. And he has the invidious position of being blamed both for Boris Johnson's defenestration and for letting him remain in power for so long. Um, also, the fact that he's turned away from many of the uh, characteristic Liz Truss era policies means that he's very unpopular um, with the low tax contingent. And as we saw last week with Boris Johnson and Liz Truss doing the best they could to keep their profiles, uh, you know, on life support and to remain in the public eye, he does have, um, as it were, alternative candidates for party leader or indeed prime minister who are milling around quite conspicuously just behind him. So I think that this is certainly an attempt to appease the Tory authoritarian reactionary right wing. Um, but the conditions aren't there for Rishi Sunak, I think, to truly pull it off. I mean, what's really interesting is that Lee Anderson is kind of the... Um, most unpolished version of something that Rishi Sunak's predecessors have had to do. So with Boris Johnson, putting Pretty Patel, who also uh, was very much in favour of bringing back hanging, at least she was before she was a government minister, um, he, he used her effectively to defend his right flank. Um, and that's also why it was so difficult to get uh, Cressida Dick to step down as Met Police Commissioner, which is he had quite a close relationship between Priti Patel and Cressida Dick, and you had that relationship between Boris Johnson and Priti Patel, so much so that when she was found to have breached the ministerial code over bullying, effectively Boris Johnson said, rally the troops, we're going to defend Priti Patel, and that's because she played a role in his political strategy. You had a perhaps less sophisticated version of that when you had Liz Truss bringing Suella Braverman into government, albeit for all of two weeks or something, because she too breached the ministerial code. Um, you have someone who is deeply, deeply reactionary, um, who is playing that role of appeasing the authoritarian right flank, who's also really invested in the culture wars stuff. Um, don't forget that the reason why Suella Braverman had to do her six-day revolving door resignation 
was because of allegations she'd been leaking to John Redwood, who's a chair of the Common Sense Group, a very, very uh, hardcore, head-banging group of conservative MPs. And so Rishi Sunak is kind of trying to do the same thing here with 30p Lee. Uh, The trouble is, is that he's in a difficult position because at least Suella Braverman is bound by cabinet collective responsibility. All right. She can't go freelancing while she's the home secretary. And we know that there have been conflicts within cabinet over stuff like uh, foreign students, whether or not you have them added to the immigration numbers, whether or not you want to invite more of them in order to try and drive growth uh, during these difficult economic times. But Lee Anderson has a position of prominence because he's a deputy Tory party chair, but he's not bound by cabinet collective responsibility in the same way, which means that he can indeed freelance. Now, that might be Rishi Sunak's plan, which is you get him saying this kind of, you know, mad authoritarian shit, like bring back hanging for, I don't know, weed possession or whatever. Um, And that's something which plays to the base and riles them up. But you also have the problem, which is if you start saying things which play well in key battleground constituencies, that's shooting yourself in the foot somewhat. We know that uh, the Tory election strategist Isaac Levido has been recommending an 80-20 strategy. So that means hold on to 80 seats, uh, win 20 new ones, and that's the path they hope for a Tory electoral victory uh, in you know 18 months or whenever the next election is. Now, what the composition of what the composition of those 80 uh, seats that they want to hold on to and 20 new ones that they uh, want to get will be very, very different. There'll be 80 seats where, sure, like they will be um, Labour leave voting seats. There'll be uh, 20 new seats, I'm sure, which will have that uh, set of political demographics that they want to win. But many of those seats that they'll need to hold on to are going to be Tory Lib Dem battlegrounds uh, in the South. So there won't be those red wall seats in the Midlands and the North. They're going to be the kinds of seats that we've seen the Tories do quite badly in in recent years. For example, Chesham and Amersham. Um, Having someone like Lee Anderson at a very prominent level in the media talking about things which are going to turn off many of those Lib Dem Tory swing voters that might be shoring up your right wing flank, but it might be endangering some of those really key constituencies at the ballot box next time around. On to our next story where unions have once again been at the centre of harassment scandal. The Transport Salaried Staffs Association is the biggest independent union representing Transport for London staff. And it's now been subject to a damning new report uncovering decades worth of sexual harassment, discrimination and bullying. An inquiry into the culture at the union was launched by Helena Kennedy, Cute Casey, in May 2022, following an attempt to use a gag agreement to stop allegations of sexism and harassment against TSSA General Secretary Manuel Cortez from coming to light. Spoiler, it didn't work. And in September 2022, Cortez resigned with an undisclosed payoff and Kennedy's inquiry continued. Now, Kennedy's report is public, and what she found was shocking, as Navarra's Labour correspondent Polly Smythe reports. Of the 50 individuals who spoke to Kennedy, only two 
had something positive to say, with one of those being a senior member of staff who, according to Kennedy, was the subject of fear and distrust on the part of many. For others who came forward, they described the TSSA's culture as toxic, dysfunctional, worn down, vindictive, fearful, sexist, misogynistic, racist, homophobic, embarrassing and mafia-like in freefall. The report found specific instances of non-consensual sexual behaviour involving internal leadership, including the sliding of a hand in between the upper thighs of a woman from behind, sliding a finger up and down the thigh of a young woman, squeezing breasts and repeatedly groping a woman from behind. Kennedy added that persistent, violent and sexualized language towards young women was frequent, such as, you're cock hunting, are you? In the report, Kennedy writes that absolute power at the TSSA is concentrated in a very small number of hands with little or no scrutiny. Kennedy also says, I have found a culture that is stuck, it seems, in a morass of staff upset and grievance on matters relating not just to sexual harassment and assault, but also to the bullying, silencing and marginalising of staff. The internal leadership claims little or no knowledge of the state of things. It is acknowledged by leadership that there are a few disgruntled individuals, much as there would be in any organisation. This perspective simply doesn't wash in the face of the volume of evidence that was presented to me. Now, Kennedy concluded that TSSA leadership is not fit for purpose and that none of its current senior figures should remain in the organisation. In a statement, the TSSA said its executive committee accepts the report and its recommendations and that the president and treasurer have stood down with immediate effect. General Secretary of the Bakers Union, Sarah Woolley, responded to the Kennedy report on social media saying this. There are now three damning reports about sexual harassment in trade unions in the public domain, and I suspect many more are being dealt with quietly internally. She continued. We have a massive problem of misogyny, abuse and harassment that won't go away whilst ever we pretend that it isn't our problem because we haven't witnessed it happening. Perpetrators have no place in the trade union movement. Survivors should be listened to, believed and supported. Ash, why do you think there seems to be a rash of reports surrounding harassment and bullying at senior level within trade unions at the moment? I think that there are some reasons behind it, which are generally true of lots of workplaces, which is if you've got a setting which is hierarchical, where you've got a lot of power concentrated at the top, and you also have a traditionally very macho kind of working culture, then it's unsurprising that you'll see uh, a spate of bullying and harassment and various other kinds of unacceptable workplace behavior. Now, that's something which you'll see in the trade union movement, but it's also something that you'll see across the private sector as well. But I also think that there are some very specific reasons about why it can become so entrenched within some parts of the trade union movement. And I think that you've got to really have a good, hard and critical look at the culture. So I think that when you're in a workplace setting, which is often under attack, 
right? You're being smeared in the press as union barons. You're having to go up against the interests of capital day in, day out. And you really feel that you're fighting the good fight because when it comes to representing what workers' interests you are, that means that you can have individuals who take advantage of that cloak of moral authority and also a kind of embattled, beleaguered feel to manipulate things for their own interests. So one, it means that you're able to behave very, very badly because you have the outward appearance of doing good things, of acting in the interests of solidarity. Two, because people are so aware of the need for a strong trade union movement and how difficult it is because of things like anti-trade union laws and also the media and political climate, you have a culture of silencing, which can sometimes be very explicitly enforced from the top down and sometimes is internalized. It's a feeling of, well, I don't want to be the one to blow the whistle and, you know, cause a big fuss and bring in all the scrutiny, which means that we can't do the good work that we do, which is representing workers in disputes. And I also think that the trade union movement, I think because it has historically been very, very macho, and because there's also this feeling of, well, you don't want to be seen attacking the trade union movement. It means that aspects of that culture haven't been challenged. It's not been taken on. And you've not been allowed to develop a healthier workplace culture, which is safe for all kinds of people to participate in, in this case, uh, women and in particular, young women. Next, 21st century folk hero Martin Lewis fires a new warning shot to the Chancellor. In April, the energy price cap guarantee is set to rise by 20%, meaning that households will see their energy bills increase by a fifth. At the same time, the £400 energy support scheme will come to an end. Put together, households are going to be hit. Hard. But now, money-saving expert Martin Lewis has written an open letter to Jeremy Hunt, demanding that he rethinks this plan. He explained why to Good Morning Britain. Now, it's important to understand energy prices are effectively nationalised at the moment. They're either set by the government or they're set by the regulator. Pretty much everybody in England, Scotland and Wales pays the energy price guarantee, which is the state-subsidised energy tariff. And that is what is going to increase by 20% on the 1st of April. Now, when that announcement first came out in the autumn statement, wholesale energy prices, the rates that the gas and electricity retailers pay, were very substantially higher than they are now. And what's actually looking to happen right now is we will be on the energy price guarantee from April to Ju July, so the state subsidised price. And at that point, the price cap set by the regulator that is dictated by wholesale prices will then drop below the energy price guarantee, both where it is now and the increased one, and we will move to the price cap. So the state will no longer be subsidising. And as it had expected to subsidise for another, well, getting on for a year, that won't have to happen. Mm. So my call is very simple, uh, both for people's pockets and for people's mental health. When this letter comes out, bill after bill has gone up, energy prices have doubled, broadband rates are going up by 14% in April. We've got water bills going up by 7.5%. We've got the energy support mechanism being withdrawn in April. At that point, it seems to me there is no need to write to people and say there is a 20% rise coming. If it were just postponed for a few months, it's likely prices would not go up. They would then go down. 
So we could stick where we are right now. There's a lot of headroom because wholesale prices have come down so much. It's likely over 10 billion on some estimates, less that the government will spend than it was expecting to spend supporting this measure because the underlying wholesale rates have come down. Another way of putting that is that the wholesale energy price predictions that the Chancellor relied on when he made his autumn statement are a lot more optimistic now than they were then. Cornwall Insights have produced this prediction for where the energy price cap will go over the rest of the year. The important figures are the totals at the bottom. When Hunt made his autumn statement, the price prediction for July to December 2023 was about £3,200. As you can see from the table, it's now about £800 cheaper. That £800 difference in energy costs means huge savings for the government in the long term, some of which could be used to protect households from unnecessary jumps in their energy bills over the next months. And changes in wholesale energy prices seem to back Lewis up. This graph from energy brokers Clifford Talbot shows the change in energy prices over the last year. Oil prices, that's the orange line, peaked in late February last year, but have been steadily dropping since early summer. Gas prices, the blue, and electricity, the green, both peaked in August, but they've been dropping since. At this point, wholesale prices are no higher than they were before the war in Ukraine began. Extending the current level of the price cap guarantee for a few extra months will save millions of people a lot of money and a lot of stress. But it'll dig into the savings the government is looking to make as wholesale prices drop. Ash, will the government back Martin Lewis? I think that there's a roughly 50-50 chance that they might. So when you look at how the economy has been doing, we've very narrowly averted a recession so far. And that's with having an energy price gap. Should households be forced into paying much higher bills and even just facing the prospect of paying much higher bills, which means that they reduce spending elsewhere, that narrow averting of a recession uh, might might evaporate because you have a, a collapse in consumer spending. So I don't think that the decision is going to be made by Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak on the basis of what's most compassionate for households, because that's not how the Conservative Party work. But there is, in terms of their own priorities, a set of economic incentives, which might mean that they go, it's worth insulating houses uh, from an increase in the energy price cap for a bit longer, because it does have these other economic benefits. That's our show for the evening, short and sweet. Thank you for joining me tonight, Ash. I'm so happy to be on your first Thursday show, Moya. I feel very honoured. <laughs> thank you very much. And thank you for everyone at home for tuning in tonight. Make sure to come back to this channel tomorrow night at 6pm. Michael Walker will be back with Aaron Bostani joining him. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Thank you for helping me get this show on the road as I learn to read. And good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.